I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. In our first message, we considered the inspired penmen of Proverbs, and we considered Solomon's unparalleled wisdom. And now we're looking at Proverbs prologue, or the preface to the whole book, and it's our need for wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And we're looking at the pious principle that's essential to all true wisdom, and that is the fear of God. And we answered the question very briefly, what is the fear of the Lord? Secondly, we looked at the privileges that belong to those who fear the Lord. And this morning, we're going to come to some characteristics that mark those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 1, beginning at verse 7, reading through verse 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Let's pray. Again, Father, we would ask that you would give us help from on high, that your Spirit would have his gracious way with each one of us according to our spiritual need wherever we are whether we're in the kingdom or we're not you would bring those who are outside inside the kingdom you grant them the graces of faith and repentance to run to Jesus Christ and to be saved and that for them this would be the day of salvation and for those who are your own people we pray that you would build them up in the most holy faith as we consider the inscripturated word of God, that you would give us hearts to embrace it, to love it, to live in light of it. And so we pray that you would make us more like Jesus Christ, the incarnate word himself, as a result of our study this morning. So be with us, fetch much glory to yourself, as you do good to saint and sinner alike, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We've been studying the grace and duty of fearing God. So let me begin with a question this morning. Do you fear the Lord? How do you know that you fear Him? What are the characteristics of a man, a woman, or a child that fears the Lord? In other words, what does the fear of God look like practically? Even in our scripture reading this morning, we are reminded that we are to examine ourselves according to the teaching of scripture. God commands us in various places to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, to make our calling and election sure, so that we may know for certain that we are true Christians. If you're a Christian here this morning, you don't want to be self-deceived on such a critical matter as this. If you know the Lord, you want to be assured that your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine. 
Even a healthy person knows the importance of regular medical checkups. And so the healthy Christian knows the value of spiritual checkups. He wants to be sure that he is in a healthy spiritual state. Further, he wants to discover his weaknesses and defects, areas that need treatment and correction that are shown him by a careful examination of the Word of God. The vigor of godly fear is a crucial indicator of our spiritual health. Thomas Watson has observed, the fear of God is the sum of all true religion. And then he quotes Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. This is it. This is the bottom line, Solomon says. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, or the duty of every man, your translation might read. Watson says, Fear is the leading grace, the first seed which God sows in the heart. When a Christian can say little of faith and perhaps nothing of assurance, yet he dares not deny that he fears God. God is so great that the Christian is afraid of displeasing him and so good that he is afraid of losing him. End of quote. And this morning we come to the first of two messages answering the question, what are the characteristics of those who fear the Lord? We're going to examine ourselves according to what the Bible teaches about the fear of God and how it manifests itself in a person who fears Him. We're going to note three today, and God willing, we'll note and we'll consider four next week. What is the first characteristic of those who fear God. Well, first of all, the fear of the Lord makes us hate evil. Proverbs 8 in verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And then Proverbs 16 in verse 6, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. You want to know if you fear the Lord? then you will hate evil, and you will keep away from it. <clears throat> Brethren, the Bible teaches that God hates nothing but evil. And those who bear the family likeness, those who are true sons of God, will likewise hate evil. And what is this evil? Well, it's first used in the book of Genesis in chapters 2 and 3 to speak of that disposition of disobeying God, to do what He has not commanded or to not do what He has commanded. Indeed, we cannot love God without hating evil. Psalm 97.10 Hate evil, you who love the Lord. The connection is plain. If we love and fear God, we will hate evil. So let me ask you, do you hate evil? Well, not just evil in general and out in the world, or the evil of others. <clears throat> but do you hate the manifestations of evil in your own heart and life? 
Let me ask you, do you flirt with evil? Do you secretly fondle evil in your heart? Do you roll it as a morsel under your tongue? Be warned. Hypocrites secretly practice sins in private. They protest in public. Some of sin's loudest protesters have been its lewdest practitioners. One who fears God is fearful of sin. The proof that we truly fear God is not only hating, but also keeping ourselves from evil. I remember years ago, there was a bumper sticker on cars that said, No fear! You might remember them. I don't know what they intended to say. I don't know if that was a proud and cocky fist in the face of God says, I don't fear you. I don't fear anything. Psalm 27 and verse 12. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. He has a fear. He fears evil. He sees it. He hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. You see what is evil and what is harmful and you avoid it. You see, to keep from evil means not to dabble in it or to flirt with it, but to run from it like Joseph did when he ran from Potiphar's lecherous wife. To hate evil is not to put yourself in the way of temptation. Indeed, are we not to pray, Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. The fool places himself in harm's way, and then he suffers for his folly. Proverbs 7 and verse 22. Suddenly he follows her, the strange woman, the adulteress. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. He doesn't hate evil. He doesn't keep away from evil. He flirts with it. He fondles it. He pays the price for it. Brethren, the Bible warns us against compromising with evil. Yet how many professing Christians, out of a misguided desire to be all things to all men, or to not offend the wicked, refuse to come down with both feet on the side of righteousness when popular culture and Christian principle clash? Sadly, the fear of man trumps the fear of God. In such cases, the Bible's message is plain. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. If you fear the Lord, you will not be halting and half hearted in your opposition to evil, no matter how popular or politically correct, if it is against the teaching of the Word of God. Again, the Bible's message is very plain. Exodus 23 and verse 12. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. In other words, you will not give in to evil peer pressure. 
Now, what does this mean practically for those who fear the Lord? We must keep ourselves from temptations to be politically correct that require us to sin. We're not free to deny the truth with the excuse that we just must not offend others. A man or a woman or a child who fears God is more afraid of offending God than of offending man whose breath is in his nostrils. Besides, it's not before them that we're going to stand one day. It's before God. Instead, by the grace of God, we must be content with being thought judgmental or, or backwards or irrelevant for taking a gracious but firm stand against evil in all of its fashionable attire. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, he, he seems to be getting away with it. And he is until a certain day comes. Solomon says, Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. For instance, the Bible gives us no liberty to use cultural euphemisms which deny or downplay the evil of sin. You know the many of them that are there. A man doesn't commit adultery or fornication. He has what? An affair. You tell a white lie. You five-finger something from the store. Furthermore, I would say that employees required that are required to lie by adopting trans-friendly personal pronouns, that is not liberty for a Christian. That's telling a lie. He's or he's and she's or she's. You're not standing for the truth, and you're not encouraging one to see reality as it really is to adopt that kind of mindset. That's the devil's vernacular and vocabulary. Brethren, those who fear the Lord do not do evil that good may come. So the fear of the Lord makes us hate evil. Secondly, the fear of the Lord makes us humble and self-watchful. Of the many graces impacted by the fear of God that could be cited, let's ponder just two and their wide impact upon us. First of all, the fear of God makes us lowly in our own eyes. Arrogance is an ugly vice. Humility, on the other hand, is a beautiful virtue. It may not be beautiful in the eyes of the world, but it's beautiful in the eyes of God. It's beautiful in the eyes of those who fear God. 
No grace more wonderfully displays the loveliness of Jesus than lowliness in his people. He always placed himself gladly at his Father's disposal, delighting to do his will. He always delighted to do those things which brought God glory. And so will those who fear God. Charles Bridges observes from the text, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. You see, if we fear God, we won't be wise in our own eyes. Bridges observes that this warning against self-confidence is closely connected with the preceding verse. The wise in their own eyes is he that leans on his own understanding. We don't need to ask anyone else for help. We've got it figured out, right? We can lean on our own understanding because it will always bear our weight, won't it? Well, I trust you know differently from your own experience. Pride makes us self-assured. It convinces us that we are right in doubtful matters, preventing us from seeking wise counsel. But humility makes us slow to trust our own judgment and always ready to lean upon the Lord. Paul quotes this text in Romans as a duty for Christians who seek harmony in the church, where he writes, Do not be haughty in mind. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Remember Solomon's primary audience. Who was he especially writing to? He was writing to the young and to the naive. A cocky, self-assured, and even know-it-all spirit is not uncommon among the young. I know I was once young. Many who don't have yet settled their knowledge on life's basic questions are quick to pontificate on things that they little understand. Even Seneca, the heathen orator, observed, I suppose that many might have attained to wisdom had they not thought they had already attained it. But let me quickly add that this cocky self-confidence is especially unattractive and inexcusable in older people who by their many falls and failures by now should be walking humbly before God. One who fears the Lord laments his own ignorance. He's quick to second-guess himself in doubtful matters, so he seeks wisdom and guidance from those wiser than himself, especially from the Lord. Psalm 25, in verse 9, the, He, that is, God leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. And there's no room in our proud hearts for God's leadership. And so he allows us to stumble and fall and skin our chins to teach us that he leads the humble in justice.
Secondly, here under this point, the fear of the Lord causes us to diligently guard our hearts, not only to be lowly in our own eyes, but to diligently guard our hearts. Whereas the world teaches us to trust in our own hearts, assuring us that our hearts are basically good, the Bible presents us with a very different, indeed a quite unflattering picture of our heart. What is God's diagnosis of the natural, the unrenewed heart? What did he say of Noah's generation? Genesis 6 and verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wish I had time to dissect and set out what, what God is saying there. But we're wicked through and through, and it begins in our heart, and it works outward in our lives. Now, brethren, the flood that scrubbed the world clean of mankind didn't cleanse the hearts of men. The infallible testimony of God's prophet is as plain as it is painful to contemplate. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. You take all these other things that you think that are evil and deceitful and bring it up against the heart and compare them. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's only one that does. And that's the God that made us. You and I quickly learn to distrust deceitful persons, and yet we are slow to distrust our own deceitful hearts. Because we always think the problem's out there. No, the problem's in here. Both the Word of God and honest personal experience agree that he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, as Solomon says. If we are honest with ourselves, we must recall times when our heart has led us astray into evil. We fall prey to evil because we trust our heart and do not seek the Lord. We read that King Rehoboam did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. The cause was he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. The result was he did evil. Only by seeking the Lord and by carefully guarding our hearts will we not be led into evil. Brethren, our hearts are the very citadel of our soul. We must watch it above all things so that it is not breached. If you lose your heart to evil, you lose all. Your heart determines all the various facets of your conduct. It all begins here. It begins here, it comes here, here, and here, and everywhere else. Proverbs 4, verses 23 through 27. 
Here's the basic command, and the reason is given. Watch over your heart with all diligence. There's no time to slack off, no time to sleep. You can't take a vacation from it. It is your duty all the day, all your waking hours. And pray even at night, God, keep my heart in my sleep. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. They all go out from the heart. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious lips far from you. You have to watch over your heart with all diligence so that you won't have a deceitful heart and devious lips. Let your eyes look directly ahead let your gaze be fixed in front of you. Set no unworthy thing before your eyes. Make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look on things that will lead your heart and your body astray. Watch the path of your feet and all of your ways will be established. Do not turn from the right or to, to the right or to the left, turn your foot from evil. But it all begins here. As we say, the heart bone is connected to the eye bone and the hand bone, the tongue bone, and the foot bone. Brethren, it's not hard to trace the eruptions of a foul mouth, the devious statements of lying lips, lurid gaze from wandering eyes, and the wicked path trod by wayward feet back to their source in an unguarded heart. We need to know our spiritual anatomy. The mechanics of sin begins here. The man who fears God guards his heart. So we've seen that the fear of the Lord makes us hate evil. Secondly, the fear of the Lord makes us humble and self-watchful. Thirdly, and finally, and we'll flesh this out a little more, the fear of the Lord makes us respectful of others and upright in all our dealings. You see, if the fear of the Lord is a living principle in us, we will be careful to do right by our neighbor. We will fear wronging him in any way. And brethren, this is the implication of the second great commandment. Yes, we're to love the Lord our God with all the totality of our being, and we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Several texts in the Old and New Testaments teach the necessary relationship between fearing God and our treatment of others. And brethren, this duty is stated both negatively and positively, both generally and specifically. Briefly, then notice with me how the fear of God impacts our duty to be, be respectful and upright in all of our dealings with others. First of all, generally, there's the big picture. 1 Peter 2, verse 17. <clears throat> Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. 
honor the king. You see, fearing God is the hub for our right relationship with other people. Leviticus says it in the Old Testament as well, 25 and verse 17. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So we are to honor all men. We are to honor the king. We are to love the brotherhood out of the overflow of a heart that fears God. But specifically in various ways and with various sorts of people. You see, if we fear, fear God, we will show kindness and respect to the weak, the needy, the downtrodden, the powerless, and the innocent that we meet in our lives. We're going to seek to love them as we love ourselves. We want to do them good. Jeremiah 22 and verse 3, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor, and do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Well, notice specifically several ways the fear of God impacts our treatment of others. First of all, and I can only just sketch this out, godly fear will prevent you from mistreating the handicapped, but will instead cause you to honor them. We can often be very cruel with our tongues. The very children that we think are sometimes very innocent can be very unkind in the use of their tongues toward those who are challenged physically or mentally. Leviticus 19.14 You shall not curse a deaf man. He can't hear what I'm saying. And so I can say all these things to him and about him. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. I just put this down here right in front of me and watch him trip over it. Isn't, isn't that funny? No, but you shall revere your God. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. We won't make fun of other people because of their God-given limitations or because maybe they've hurt or harmed themselves in some way and they're living with the effects of it the rest of their lives. Godly fear will prevent that. You'll honor them instead. Secondly, those who fear God refuse to take advantage of those in inferior positions. You can lean hard upon them because they don't have any help. You're higher than they are, and therefore you can abuse them. Nehemiah 5.15 But the former governors who were here before me, Nehemiah says, laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. They come back from exile. They have nothing. And they're mistreated. And what little they have is taken away from them. And they're taxed oppressively. But Nehemiah says, I wasn't of their ilk by the grace of God. Notice what he says. 
But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. I treated them fairly. I supported them. I was their advocate. Thirdly, we show that we fear God by honoring the elderly. Proverbs 20 and verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength. The honor of old men is their gray hair. Leviticus 19 and verse 32. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Now, you might be sitting back there and have years younger than me, and you think, well, Pastor Steve, that sounds kind of self-serving, doesn't it? Well, brother, and I have to teach what the Bible teaches. I'm not doing this for my own personal aggrandizement. We have an example of a young man, a very wise young man, in the book of, of Job, who sat still, bit his tongue, while all of Job's friends were explaining to him why he was in the situation that he was in, and listening to Job respond to them. His name is Elihu. Job 32 and verse 4. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they, that is Job and his friends, were years older than he. Verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, spoke out and said, and this is how he introduced him, himself, I am young in years and you are old, therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. He didn't say I'm, I'm on par and I'm a peer of you with age and experience. No, he said I bit my, my tongue and I didn't speak until it was appropriate for me to do so. And I would encourage young men God has given you two ears and one tongue. And I believe he encourages us to use those organs proportionately. Be quick to hear and what? Slow to speak. You have something to say, say it in a respectful way and at a respectful time. Brethren, the general principle in the word is that we are to give honor to whom honor is due. And the specific application here is honoring the aged who have earned the respect and should experience the deference of the younger. Such honor for the aged and experience is becoming, I believe, increasingly scarce in our day where youth and youth culture is celebrated everywhere. Fourthly, you fear the Lord by expecting honesty and integrity from others in your personal dealings. And we see a hint of this, I think more than a hint, in Joseph's response to his brothers. Genesis 42, verses 18 through 20. Now Joseph said to them, that is his brothers who didn't know who he was, yet, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. 
If you are honest men, as they testified that they were, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring the youngest, your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Joseph expected his brothers to be men of integrity. They confessed themselves so to be. And he wanted to find out if they learned anything over the course of 20 years from the time that they sold him into slavery. So he expected them, we are to expect others to be men of integrity, people of their word. Brethren, the fear of God will make us demand honest dealings in business contracts and personal dealings from other people. Fifthly, a God-fearing person will keep his word even if it costs him dearly. Psalm 15 and verse 4. He who honors those who fear the Lord, notice, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. And brethren, Jesus is our great model here. Spurgeon points us to Jesus who kept his covenant engagement with his father as our great model in our dealings with others as a man of integrity. He is the oath keeper who swore to his own hurt and did not change. Spurgeon writes, When engagements have been entered into which turn out to be unprofitable, the saints are men of honor still. Our blessed surety swore to his own hurt, but how graciously he stood to his suretyship. What a comfort to us that he changes not. And what an example to us to be scrupulously and precisely exact in fulfilling our covenants with others. The most far-seeing trader may enter into engagements which turn out to be serious losses. But whatsoever he loses, if he keeps his honor, he lose, his losses will be bearable. If that be lost, all is lost. Righteous Joshua refused to go back on his oath to the deceptive Gibeonites after he found out that they were pulling the wool over his eyes. They didn't live so far away as they made themselves out to be. They lived within the land and they were marked for death. But... He, Joshua first should have sought the Lord, but he just, yeah, okay, yep, you can live here. And he found out later that they tricked him. And all around him said, you don't have to stand by your oath, they lied to you. He said, yes, they lied to me, but I made an oath and I'm not going back on it. Brethren, we must keep our word rather than sin, even when it may be costly. Here's Spurgeon again, 
Let us remember that nothing can excuse us from a promise made unless it be positive inability to perform it or the unlawfulness of the thing promised. If there be no other men of honor in the world, let the saints be such. Sadly, among the people of the world, and I'm afraid increasingly within the church, it is becoming more like the world, that a man's word is no longer his bond. You can't say it with a handshake anymore. You have to have lawyers to put it all down in writing. How many are willing to barter their integrity for a buck? But the Bible teaches a different standard of value. Proverbs 22 and verse 1. A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than gold, uh, silver and gold. That means in our engagements with others, our word is our bond. If you're an employee, you don't cut corners. You don't lie to please certain people. And you remember it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. Finally, the fear of God will impact our witness for Christ. First Peter three fifteen. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. To give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Or the word can be translated fear. Same word. Brethren, the fear of God will influence how we share our hope in Christ with others. Mr. Barnes comments on how our hope should make us gentle toward men and reverent toward God. He writes, speaking of gentleness, not fall into a passion to, to manifest resentment or to retort in an angry and revengeful manner, but in a calm and gentle spirit, they were to state the reasons of their faith and hope and leave the matter there. Not to viciously and vociferously try to argue them into the kingdom of God. We don't change their hearts. God has to change their heart. Be respectful to them. And fear. The sense seems to be, Mr. Barnes writes, in the fear of God with a serious and reverent spirit, as in the presence of him who sees and hears all things. It evidently does not mean with the, with the fear or dread of those who po propose the question, we're not to be afraid of them, but with that serious and reverent frame of mind, which is produced by a deep Impression of the importance of the subject and a conscious sense of the presence of God. How many times have we let our tongue get away from us? Our, our heart is rather inflamed than broken. 
and we don't represent Christ well, and we might even put a stumbling block before them, rather than just being calm-spirited, speaking the truth as it is in Jesus, seeking to be as winsome as our Savior was, as it was said of Him, all, the common man heard Him gladly, that we would be like our Savior, and not thinking we've got to notch our Bibles. We've got to argue them into the kingdom, but leave the results with God after having spoken plainly the truth that salvation is in Him alone. The fear of God will make us conscious of God's presence and of the eternal issues at stake in our witness. We must ever remember that the kingdom of Christ is not advanced by a hot temper or with caustic comments and arguments, but with appropriate gentleness and reverence that befit our calling from God, and our hope in Him. Indeed, I dare say, you who are brought to Christ, and you can remember how it happened, or you can remember the events leading up to it, it probably wasn't a red-faced, tight-fisted man trying to cram the gospel down your throat. No, the Lord spoke, perhaps through the still, small voice, and even if you were accosted by such a person, it wasn't because of the way he spoke, but it was in spite of it, and God was sovereign, and he brought it home with saving power to your heart. So let us seek to be those who, when people ask us to give them a reason for the hope that is within us, to do it with gentleness toward them, and I dare say it will be with gentleness toward them, if we have reverence toward God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we who come before you would have a deepened desire to demonstrate the characteristics of those who fear you. Lord, your fear is placed within our hearts by your sovereign grace. But Lord, we would develop that fear. We would grow in it. We would be those whose reverence for you is demonstrated in our even most mundane conversation that it would be evident that it's the Lord Christ that we serve. So Lord, be with us. Help us in all of these things to exemplify your grace and power by our godly fear in the way that we way that we live, by what we look at, how we speak, what we think in our hearts, and how we go about our lives. Hear us, we pray, that good might be done to encourage our brothers and sisters, good would be done to sinners outside the kingdom of God, and ultimately that it would redound to your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.